Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, mystery solved. Kim Jong-un, alive. Not sure if he's alive and well, but he is alive. You know, I'm not convinced. How do you know, <laughs> how do you know it's not a body double? How do you know he's not holed up in that train in a coffin while some actor goes around to factories and cuts ribbons, Shane? Is there another man that big in North Korea? You know that they have body doubles for him. But honestly, I think he was life. just like... I'm going to screw with everybody. I'm going to disappear. He was He's getting his toes done, getting a facial, having a little spa week. Who doesn't need a three-week vacation in the midst of this global unrest and uncertainty? But they don't have coronavirus vacation. in North Korea. A staycation. That's what it All was. vacations in North Korea are staycations. <laughs> Come for the rest of your life. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the U2 can be the DNI edition. What if Kim Jong-un would like to be the DNI? Oh, I bet he'd love that job. I want to be the DNI. Maybe then Donald Trump would actually believe uh, intelligence reports. I would totally love to be the DNI. I think, you know, you get to walk into the Oval Office and give the president the truth. And then he says, you know, but what about hydrochloric? chloroquine and you get to say Mr. President we have no evidence that would support that and then you get to get fired it's a great job you already do that on your Twitter feed every day (laughs) so in a way you are the DNI oh I'm certain that there are a number of senators who would think that you were more qualified than the current nominee so you know don't give up hope Hope springs eternal. It sure does. I'm Shane Harris, and we are here in the far-flung jungle studios. I'm here with my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hey, Hi. Shane. How goes week eight of the shut-in? What glorious restaurants have you been eating from lately, Shane? Uh, I had dinner from the Red Hen last night, which is The Red Hen is kind of your fave. It's my favorite. They're our neighbors. They are, they are literally down the street, so that's kind of fun. Uh, and yeah, who doesn't like a nice big bowl of delicious pasta in the midst of national crisis? I'm waiting for you to order in from Ben's chili bowl, Shane. Uh, I will need to do that actually. Yes. I need to order up and I think you can't order in, but you can go pick it up. You can swing by and get some half smokes. Um, before we begin, uh, a little housekeeping next week, of course, is our big live show. Uh, we're going to be starting for one, uh, information at two 30 PM sharp Eastern time. Uh, and if you want to join us, it'd be very easy to do. We are going to put a link, uh, for you to register and you have to register before the show. That's very important. Uh, we're going to put that in our show notes. It'll be on our Facebook page. We'll pin it on our Twitter account. Uh, and it should be in the show notes for your pod in your podcasting app. 
as well. But follow that on uh, next Wednesday, again, 2.30 p.m. sharp. And once you are in there, you'll be able to uh, pose questions for us. We're going to do a Q&A format. Uh, and we are really looking forward to seeing everybody there. That's going to be fun. It's our first Zoom show. It is our first Zoom show and our first live rational security since when was the last one we did? Was it at University of Maryland with Daniel Danielle Citron? I, th- I think so. And then maybe the beer summit before that with our friends from uh, the Cyber Law Podcast and, uh, and Lawfare. Yeah, I wish we could do this one while having a beer with all of you fantastic listeners. But soon. We can, soon. We can definitely we can have a beer. Yeah. There will be beer. We can certainly drink. Yeah, we can do that for sure. On the podcast this week, Congressman John Ratcliffe faces questions from the Senate in his quest to become the next director of national intelligence. Americans are detained in an apparent botched invasion of Venezuela. Just let that sink in for a second. And former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, you remember him, claims he was set up by corrupt FBI agents. Let us start with the Ratcliffe hearing, uh, which I I did cover remotely and I think was like the most normal thing that I've covered in the past two months. So that was kind of interesting. Um, Susan, I want to start with you on this. Um, This hearing was held under extraordinary circumstances, to say the least. I think it it was the first confirmation hearing certainly held in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, The social distancing was obvious. You had Congressman Ratcliffe sitting at the far end of a large hearing room with senators on the dais at the other end, and they commented how they could, like, they actually had trouble seeing each other and reading each other's facial expressions. There was hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes everywhere. And importantly, I think senators were coming in and out in small groups, sort of rotating uh, on the dais. And I don't think that you saw the kind of sustained adversarial questioning that you would expect to see from Democrats when they were facing down a Republican nominee. So there was a sort of strange tempo to the thing. And of course, we should remind people this was wasn't uh, Ratcliffe's uh, first time at this particular rodeo. He was nominated last year and withdrew after news organizations, including The Post, showed that he had exaggerated the significance of his work as a federal prosecutor. So he came in with that kind of cloud hanging over him and knowing that, you know, some Republicans weren't exactly hot on him last year as well. So how do you think that he did? Uh, What did he say? And do you think he demonstrated that he is qualified to be the next DNI? Yeah, so it was certainly a bizarre hearing to witness um, and one that I think I think you're right that it was ultimately easier and less adversarial on Ratcliffe than an in-person hearing would have been under other circumstances. Although I do think the Senate should be lauded for attempting to be responsible and follow social distancing guidelines, you know, to protect the health of members, to protect the health of staff, and also just to set a good example for people. So um, that weirdness aside, I, I do think it was positive to see Congress, um, you know, sort of trying to do its job with adjustments the way the rest of us are. Um, you know, look, the bottom line is Ratcliffe is going to be confirmed. Um, that, that was clear from the questioning. That's been clear for some period of time. And, and that itself is really, really remarkable when we think about why he had to withdraw before. Um, and that was he essentially was accused of inflating his resume on uh, sort of the significance and involvement of his role in national security cases, something that he had been leaning on during his career as sort of part of his national security bona fides, and that he had basically made it up um, and, and exaggerated that and was forced to forced to withdraw. Then in, in sort of late January, Trump comes back and renominates him 
to barely a whimper. People just kind of shrugged, um, even though none of the underlying issues had been remediated. And that itself is really remarkable because it demonstrates, one, the extent to which Trump has outplayed Congress on this. He essentially created a choice between the current acting DNI Grinnell or Radcliffe and uh, has sort of forced Congress's hand through a long period of attrition and installing loyalists in these long-term acting roles, making clear he's perfectly comfortable and, and in some cases actually prefers having acting people. Um, and so it's up to Congress. They can they can confirm this new person or they cannot, but but Trump kind of wins either way. And the path that that sort of we've taken to get to this point is a really, really alarming one. And I, I think we should be pretty concerned that that gambit appears to have worked um, and for different reasons on Republican and Democrat side. So whenever we think about sort of how did Richard Burr come around the chairman of the SSCI, um, you know, in part, it appears to just sort of saying, well, you know, he's better than Grinnell and, and who really cares? Also, Burr's been caught up in this insider trading scandal that's uh, obviously been politically costly for him. Um, and then on the Democrat side, they appear to just kind of be shrugging and saying, well, like, it doesn't matter. November is going to decide all of this. And, and who cares if it's Ratcliffe or Grinnell in the seat? And you know, that itself, I think, is pretty alarming. Then sort of getting away from, from the, just the strangeness that this person had been renominated and that it had worked, there's sort of questions about the substance of the hearing itself and what it sort of indicates about the kind of DNI that Ratcliffe might ultimately end up being. He wasn't sort of a bombastic loyalist Corey Lewandowski type, uh, you know, there to show that, you know, he's he's a true Trump believer. Um, instead, I thought he was really remarkably attempting to follow the playbook of Bill Barr, which is sort of using very reasonable sort of bipartisan uh, sort of language and presenting himself as this, you know, honest broker uh, in sort of in tone, while the substance actually indicated that he is some who is going to be a Trump loyalist, and, and in particular, sort of Barr's innovation of claiming to be depoliticizing processes, either you know DOJ processes or, or in Ratcliffe's case, intelligence processes, and saying you know and, and basically saying that he will work to depoliticize something that sort of it's an inverse, right? That what he's really pledging to do, of course, is to politicize the process, uh, sort of under the guise of, of attempting to to remove political influence. Of course, political influence is code for anything that produces results that are not favorable to the president. Um, and, and I thought Radcliffe also sort of failed the basic honesty test. You know, a, a number of Democrats sort of put out opportunities for him to give the kind of gentle pushback on the president that would show, hey, this is a person who is going to show up and tell the truth to Congress and, and be his own person and, and be an honest broker. Things like whether or not he believes the president has accurately represented the nature of the coronavirus threat. He refused to do that. I, I think that was sort of an abject failure. He was asked about whether or not he believes that the intelligence community, the workforce he is, is asking to lead, whether or not they are the deep state. And his response was, 
was, well, I don't even know what the deep state means. I don't know what you're talking about, which was just silly and a lie and sort of a, a weird punt. Um, you know, of course, he knows exactly what they're talking about. And the fact that he didn't use that opportunity to speak to the workforce and, and give some indication that he intends to defend them uh, and speak on their behalf, I, I think is really troubling. Um, you know, look, ultimately, this is someone who in any normal administration would be viewed as unqualified um, and and sort of substanceless. And the fact that he's pretty much going to sail through this nomination, I, I think, speaks to just the, the degradation of, of the current position that we're in. Uh, Tammy. I just want to add, I, I think Susan is absolutely right in all the concerns that she raises and in pointing out in particular the way in which President Trump has um, very carefully boxed in the Senate in forcing them to consider this nomination because the alternative is even worse, right? And of course, Trump loves to kind of force Senate Republicans to their knees to pledge fealty to him, which is basically what he's done with Burr in this particular instance, in forcing him to move forward on the nomination of someone who is eminently unqualified or at least underqualified for the job. But it's worth noting that it's not just that Richard Grinnell is a PR hack, you know, purely political ally of the president with who is using this post merely to launch public attacks on democratic concerns about national security and intelligence. That's not everything that's going on. The additional pressure being placed is that Grinnell has made it his business while in an acting role as DNI to push forward a bunch of reforms to the DNI's office itself. And he has, in the course of doing that, um, he's considering what, you know, what will happen to the National Counterterrorism Center, for example, which is a massively important part of the DNI function and has been a a major, major focus of resources and activities since 9-11. He's frozen hiring for the DNI's, the DNI structure while this review is going on. And in the meantime, basically every Senate appointed official in the DNI's office has either resigned or been pushed out. The inspector general was fired by the president, the head of the, the acting head of the National Counterterrorism Center um, was removed by the president. The general counsel resigned. And so Grinnell, every day that Grinnell stays in this job, it's not just that he's a hack and he can't do the job. He is actively wreaking havoc that even, you know, this underwhelming congressman, if he gets the job, may end up having to repair the damage. Ben. So I listened to this whole hearing really expecting it to be a bloodbath. And that was that expectation was conditioned by both the Ratcliffe's history, the fact that he really does seem to have engaged in some resume embellishment. He said a lot of very irresponsible things during the course of the uh, impeachment hearings and, you know, and, and the Mueller investigation. Uh, he's been a bad actor in important respects in, in a number of ways. And I really expected the Democrats to come at him hard. And I don't know whether it was the oddity of the hearing structure or whether it was 
uh, as I suspect, the oddity of the larger environment, that everybody's focused on the coronavirus crisis, and rightly so, and that it would seem to be unseemly in some ways to pick what would look like a highly partisan fight with this guy. But the first, I agree very much with Susan that it was it was striking how peaceable the whole thing was, even when Democrats raised what I think are very serious questions. They did so in a kind of like, let's put this out there and see how you respond. I think a lot of them will end up voting against him, but they're clearly not mounting a major push to stop the nomination, not that they have the votes to anyway. The second point, however, is that I thought Ratcliffe performed much better than I expected him to. And Susan rightly notes that he was using the sort of Bill Barr playbook. He actually did it extremely skillfully. And he he really emphasized knowing the difference between being in a political role, like being a member of Congress and being in an apolitical role. He really pushed a lot of the right buttons. And under normal circumstances, he did it in a way that you would say, well, there have been other people who have made this transition and done it effectively. And I wonder if a lot of the things he was saying would have sounded different than they did before Bill Barr's hearing. You know, and I I think in light of what happened with Barr, there's a world of people, and I am certainly one of them, for whom this uh, just had a completely different cadence than it might have otherwise. Um, And then the final point I'll make is that I do not really begrudge Democrats not putting their feet down about this, because you put your foot down about it, and what you get is a a big fight that you're going to lose. He gets installed anyway, and you know, you're not going to gain or lose any votes over uh, the fate of the DNI, which is a position that most voters have never spent a moment thinking about. Uh, You put him in there, you do alleviate the Grinnell problem, which is severe. And with any luck, from a Democratic point of view, he's only there for six months. And so you don't have a lot of damage as a result of it. But I think it's a very it's a very sorry situation, and I agree with Susan very much that we're all in this position of the fact that that's the calculation that we're making is a reflection of how low our expectations have sunk. Yes, I I, I agree with Ben. I think the point's well taken that it, it wouldn't have made much strategic sense for the Democrats to sort of stomp their feet over something, but ultimately they don't have the votes and this is an odd time to pick a fight that you're likely to lose. That said, I am a little bit disappointed with the way they played the hand that they were dealt, which is that we didn't see Democrats really pushing Ratcliffe for the kinds of specific reassurances and promises about what's going to happen between now and November and now and next January. And and I would have expected you know, senators to be trying to get specific guarantees about whether or not uh, the, the DNI will commit to producing to Congress intelligence about 
coronavirus and and preparation, if he will commit to uh, producing raw intelligence uh, for congressional oversight, uh, whether or not the, uh, you know, just asking Ratcliffe to confirm while, you know, in his confirmation hearings and under oath that if he believes the president of the United States has lied to Congress or lied to the American public, that he will tell the truth when asked by Congress, that he recognizes that he has an independent relationship with the legislature. And and honestly, the only person who really pushed him on it was Richard Burr, who at least tried to get him to sort of uh, concede that he would be willing to provide raw intelligence product. You know, Ron Wyden, uh, you know, got some sort of accolades on the left for this bizarre digression about whether or not waterboarding was torture, which actually sort of was a total softball to, to Ratcliffe, who sort of just responded, well, the Army Field Manual, um, and, and was kind of a bizarre digression. So I, I agree, like, there was no point in picking a huge fight over it. That said, what we saw was just kind of a weird shrug, and I think a shrug that didn't appear to recognize the importance that the of the role of DNI is going to play in the coming months over what Congress and public know about the state of intelligence, the state of the world, and sort of you know the, the basic reality in the face of a president who who frankly lies constantly. Tammy, last word. There's one other reason why I wish Democrats had tried to push back harder, maybe even on the whole idea of holding this hearing in such um, uncertain circumstances in the middle of the pandemic to consider a nomination that had been pulled back by the White House just a few months before in the last few months of an administration before a November election. There are judicial nominations that are going to come up. Um, there's a controversial nomination for the D.C. Appeals Court. Uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is back in the hospital. We're now in May of an election year. And I sort of wish that Democrats were considering playing hardball with Republicans in the Senate and saying, we should not be convening hearings to consider nominations right now. The voters are going to decide on who should be nominated, you know, and the Republicans can reap what they sow. I mean, yes, the Republicans have the votes to push this stuff forward anyway, but I part of me wishes Democrats would make it harder for them. Well, if John Ratcliffe does have the privilege of becoming the next DNI, perhaps he can explain what the fuck happened in Venezuela this week. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, Tammy, that's going to fall to you. Um, this is a genuinely bizarre story. Uh, two Americans arrested in Venezuela, apparently in a coup plot. There is, of course, a long-standing tension between President Trump and Nicolas Maduro, uh, the president of Venezuela. Tammy, what do we know about any U.S. involvement in this apparent uh, I mean, invasion may be too strong of a word, but this bizarre caper. Yeah, I think caper is a good word for it, Shane. It certainly doesn't rise to the level of an invasion. Um, <laughs> so the context here, as you noted, is that the U.S. government does not any longer recognize the government of Nicolás Maduro as the legitimate government. And the Trump administration has chosen to recognize Juan Guaido, the Speaker of Parliament, as the legitimate president of Venezuela. And that sort of constitutional crisis has been ongoing for a long time, while Guaido has been living in exile in Colombia, along with a whole lot of other elites uh, from the military and the private sector and government who have fled Venezuela. Hence the caper, I guess. 
there is this wacky story from the AP that came out on May 1st uh, about a plan to insert 300 heavily armed volunteers into Venezuela over the border from Colombia or maybe through an amphibious assault. And they were going to provoke an uprising in the Venezuelan military and then arrest President Maduro. That story, that plot was uncovered and published by the AP on May 1st. And the AP in their own story said, this plot seems to have fallen apart. But lo and behold, on May 3rd, the author of this plot released a video in which he said, no, we have launched this invasion. Um, his name is Jordan Goudreau. He is a former Green Beret uh, who earned three Bronze Stars in combat. So no shy guy uh, on the battlefield. And he owns a private security company in Florida that uh, until now had been primarily known for two things providing security at some Trump rallies in the South in 2018, and marketing a program to embed counterterrorism agents in schools disguised as teachers to deal with any potential school shootings. Somehow, Jordan Goudreau hooked up with former Venezuelan military officers and hatched this notion to train a bedraggled group of exiled Venezuelan army soldiers to go back home and incite this uprising. <laughs> it wasn't 300. It ended up being a couple uh, Zodiac boats full of people, all of whom were either killed by the Venezuelans or arrested. And two of those arrested were American citizens, uh, former special forces who had actually served abroad with Jordan Goudreau. The U.S. government is denying any involvement with this, and so is Juan Guaido, despite the fact that Silvercorp is showing off a contract with his signature on it. So the bottom line is, we don't really know if the Venezuelan opposition was behind this. We don't have any reason to think that the U.S. government was behind it. But the way Goudreau has been talking and the, the connections that he worked to make in putting this thing together suggests that he may have had some informal connections with parts of Trump world. He was introduced to the Venezuelans, for example, by Kurt Schiller, Trump's former head of security. And so, you know, there is still the possibility that people inside the Trump administration maybe knew about this plot, maybe even encouraged it or at least didn't, you know, uh, flash a red light. And under normal circumstances, this is the kind of thing that you would say is bonkers crazy that the U.S. government would stay far, far away from. But again, this is the Trump administration. They have no normal policy process. We don't know where decisions on Venezuela policy are being made. There are all these odd Trump associates who talk to the president and other senior officials offline. So I can't exclude the possibility that they at least knew. What do you think? 
Yeah, so look, I have long thought that we as a podcast should be considering launching more invasions. And now that it appears that anybody can do it. Um, I mean, we have as many people as they had almost. We, we can take it offline to discuss the details, but just putting that out Sophia there. Sophia and Jen on board. You know. we can, we call, can we call this the Bay of Piglets? <laughs> it's kind of like a miniature Bay of Pigs. Yeah, it is that. It's like I mean, Bay, look, of pigs Bay, in a Bay of blanket. guinea pigs. <laughs> Bay of guinea pigs, yeah. I mean, on on a quasi-serious note, God, I would love to be a fly on the wall of Gina Haspel's office right now, hearing about CIA's reaction to this little debacle. You know, ordinarily you would expect them to have uh, at least insight into what was going on, and certainly they'll have uh, some responsibility in answering questions about what the administration knew or did not know. Um, you know, I, I th- the date of all of this is actually sort of interesting because, you know, May first, twenty nineteen, so almost one year ago, I think it might have been April thirtieth, is the day that you know we had Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State um, coming out in all of his bluster, announcing that Maduro was on an airplane tarmac and ready to sort of escape, except for that the Russians called at the last minute, right? So a year ago, we had the Trump administration playing this sort of machismo-infused hardball of recognizing Guaido and and sort of openly threatening Maduro and and sort of um, Pompeo swagger on full display. Fast forward one year, I'd hazard, you know, I guess that that plan hasn't played out quite like Mike Pompeo thought it would. Um, And so, you know, just remarkable to kind of take a step back and think about, well, um, to the extent that there was a Venezuela policy, where has it gotten us? Um, You know, look, the other thing to, to keep in mind here is as sort of comically bizarre as this little caper is, there are now two Americans that are being held by the Venezuelans. Um, and and by and by Maduro and and uh, the Venezuelan leadership that the United States does not formally recognize. Um, that's a really dangerous situation. It's a situation in which we would expect the State Department to play a very very significant role. And so I, I think the sort of immediate question now, beyond just like what what happened, is what's gonna happen now. And other than sort of Trump coming out and giving sort of meek, you know, we had nothing to do with this. We don't know anything about it. Um, what exactly is the plan to get these Americans back? And is there one? Ben, you have a point I know you want to make, but maybe in doing that, you can respond to that question that Susan has, which I'm interested in as well, because, I mean, presumably the United States would say these people were involved in an illegal act. And so are they going to come to the rescue of them? So I'm not sure they would say that, because if they were, in fact, working for Guaido, uh, which, of course, he denies, but that denial, I think, is very likely to fall apart. Guaido is, after all, from our point of view, the legitimate president of Venezuela, right? And so I think they're, I don't know what their legal status is. Suffice it to say, however, that when you go off as a private military contractor, to invade a country whose uh, de facto government, if not their de jure government, does not want to be invaded, you, you're really doing it at your own risk. And so I, I think this is one of those sticky situations where they may do some stuff, but they have a weak hand here in demanding 
the release of these people because they, after all, did try to land on Venezuelan soil and take over. Okay, so there may not be a the question about their legal status is up in the air, but I mean, is there any kind of principle on which the United States ought to try and intervene here and get these people back? I mean, one of them, obviously, a you know former service member who presumably served honorably. I mean, is there a political or a policy principle? Maybe this is for Tammy that says you've got to at least try, even though what they did seemed to be pretty harebrained and and uh, potentially illegal. Yeah. So first, both these guys are former military who were discharged honorably. And so there is that. But, you know, standard American policy practice procedure is to demand consular access. And that's, you know, that's part of core diplomatic relations. I think it may even be in the Vienna Convention that if your citizens are arrested in another country, that government is supposed to give your embassy officials consular access, which means you get to see them and say, you know, are you being mistreated? Can we help you get a lawyer? That kind of thing. So that's like the bare minimum that the U.S. government would do. But Pompeo actually said when he was queried about this over the weekend that if, in fact, these are Americans that are there, we'll use every tool we have available to get them back. And it's worth noting that the Trump administration, um, while not having a great record in dealing with authoritarian governments about political prisoners, has worked in a lot of places to get U.S. citizens out of jail. So I, I would expect that they will try and do something, even though they have absolutely zero leverage. And Maduro would almost certainly want to use these guys in a show trial to demonstrate the grand conspiracy of the uh, American government to overthrow him. I just wanted to make one more quick point, which is that did Juan Guaido approve this mission or support this mission or pay for it or not? You know, we really don't know. This guy, Jordan Goudreau, is shady in a million ways. We don't know if this contract that's being shown around is real. But I think that what we can say is that there are a ton of splits within the Venezuelan opposition and the jockeying around who knew about this operation and who didn't is, to me, a manifestation of just how riven and feckless the opposition is. I just want to also, on on Tammy's earlier point that, you know, which raised the question of to what extent people in the administration knew about this in advance or were involved. I just want to remind people of a story that Shane Harris wrote back a long time ago when he was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal uh, about an incoming national security advisor who was busy planning the kidnapping of a Turkish cleric in Pennsylvania and his uh, expedited removal, shall we say, to Turkey. That story has never been rebutted. And so if people are inclined to say they couldn't have known about this, they couldn't have been involved in this, just go back and read that story. And I think the the implication is don't say the word couldn't have. Well, Ben, that is a perfect segue for our next statement, because the aforementioned formerly incoming and now former national security official. (laughs) 
<laughs> one Michael Flynn is back in the news this week. Uh, <clears throat> remember Michael Flynn pled guilty to a felony, lying to the FBI. Blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> Blo- oh. He did? He did. I'm really? so upset. Hurtful. <laughs> uh, ben, we've got newly released documents uh, that came out actually last week that show FBI agents preparing for their interview of Flynn back in early 2017 about his communications with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. And listeners will remember it is that conversation that Flynn pled guilty to lying about to FBI agents, which, of course, uh, you know, got him booted out of the White House and sort of the opening one of the opening chapters of La Faire Russe. Um, in one of these excerpts, an agent wrote, uh, and it's not clear which agent this was, but it's, it's handwritten notes. What is our goal? Truth slash admission? or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. Now, there's been swift condemnation from Flynn's supporters, including Donald Trump Jr., uh, about this, uh, people pointing this and saying, this is absolutely evidence of the corruption and the FBI was trying to set up Flynn from the get-go. So my question to you is, does this information show that Flynn was set up? No, it doesn't. What it shows is that the FBI officials and those notes were almost certainly taken by uh, the head of counterintelligence at the time, Bill Priestap, and probably reflect conversations, debates between uh, that were ongoing within the leadership. It shows that they had a long series and a pretty involved series of discussions about what they were trying to do with this interview. At the end of the day, I don't think it changes anything. And what the bottom line is that they had a very good reason to interview Mike Flynn, which is that they had been uh, just made aware of these conversations that he had had with Sergei Kislyak that seemed to have produced a change of policy on the Russian administration's part, that is, not to respond Uh, directly or immediately to U.S. sanctions. And they were stunned by that, by that change. They didn't know what to attribute it to. And then they found these uh, these tapes of these uh, intercepts between Kislyak and Flynn. And so they decided they they were going to shut the case down. This changed things. They reversed course and decided to go ahead with this interview in the course of discussing what they were trying to do with this interview. And it is a real question when you're interviewing the president's national security advisor on a matter of an ongoing counterintelligence concern about his conduct. They had some conversations about what the strategic purpose is. And that is an important question. Is it to confront him with his conduct? Is it to reveal the badness of his conduct so that he is removed, which is ultimately, of course, what they did. Is it to catch him in a lie and then prosecute him? Those are legitimate questions. So did they set him up? No, they prepared carefully for an interview. Was the interview conducted fairly? It really was. We have the 302s from that interview. We we know what he later admitted to. And the thing that people are not who were upset about these documents are not answering is what is it that forced Michael Flynn to lie serially throughout that interview? What's the part of that interview where he was made 
to have contacts with Sergei Kislyak and then not tell the truth about them. And what's the part of the interview uh, where he was made to have an undisclosed relationship with the Turkish government in which he took a large amount of money and did propaganda on behalf of the Turks and didn't disclose any of that under the Foreign Agents Registration Act such that he actually had very significant criminal liability on which he was allowed to plead down to one felony charge of lying to the FBI. So I think the people who are really excited about this material are really, really kidding themselves. And I'll tell you, there's one person I'm aware of who will not be fooled by any of it. And that is Judge Emmett Sullivan, who is actually has the case and is going to decide what to do with Michael Flynn's request to have his plea negated or withdrawn. Susan. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Ben that this is, um, you know, this is yet another sort of Trumpist attempt to undermine the Mueller investigation. And basically, they're grasping at straws. If you think about the task that was before the FBI and their concerns, as reflected in those notes, they had an incoming national security advisor who had had an incredibly alarming contact with a foreign government Well still in the transition period, not the not uh, currently serving the administration. They were concerned that uh, about uh, statements to the public that that reflected uh, lies about those communications. And so they had a choice. And, and the choice you face whenever you are uh, confronting a CI threat is how do we neutralize it? So one way to neutralize a CI threat is if you're really, really concerned about blackmail, right? Somebody's done this thing and now you're concerned that the Russians might have leverage. This is a concern that Sally Yates said was forefront in her mind. Then what you really want is for the person to admit it. Because once they've admit, admitted what they've done, um, the, the threat of blackmail evaporates. If instead your primary concern is, why the heck did this person have this communication? And what is going on? And what what is the larger context in which this is occurring? Then what, what you want to find out is, is this person willing to admit it? Or are they going to lie? And are they going to commit a crime in lying about it? And is that is is if they do lie, does that provide additional leverage over which you can continue to investigate? Both of those are completely legitimate paths, investigatory paths to pursue. And there's just nothing in these notes that reflects any kind of misconduct um, and, and, and certainly nothing that reflects the, the legal standards for government misconduct that would actually allow Michael Flynn to withdraw his plea uh, you know, or, or, or otherwise overturn uh, the sentence. And, and I think Ben's right in flagging, you know, Michael Flynn skated on the possible charges here. The idea that this guy was not handled fairly, you know, to this day being reminded of it, um, he really got off easy and his son really got off easy. But that's all besides the point, because none of this is actually about Michael Flynn being able to legally withdraw his plea. None of this is actually about uh, perjury traps or, or entrapment in the true legal definition. This is all about creating a pretext and a basis for Donald Trump to pardon Michael Flynn. This is something that he has wanted to do, that he has talked about doing from the very beginning. And I think that we need to remember the role that Michael Flynn 
and the, the dangling or possibility of this pardon played in the larger Mueller investigation. And that's that to this day, Michael Flynn says that he doesn't know if Donald Trump knew he had spoken to Sergei Kislyak about sanctions. He doesn't know if Donald Trump directed him to make this offer to lift sanctions to Sergei Kislyak. Uh, Katie McFarland, uh, who was sort of the intermediary, shucks, she also just couldn't remember whether or not she had told the uh, president-elect or hadn't. And But she did remember that the president, uh, President Trump, attempted to get her to write a memo saying she hadn't told him and that she refused to do that because she was concerned it was a crime. And and this is at the heart of the questions that Robert Mueller said ultimately he wasn't able to answer. He wasn't able to resolve the question of whether or not Donald Trump was aware at the time or directed Michael Flynn to have these communications with Sergei Kislyak, something that colors the entire context of everything that comes next. It colors the way we understand the case for obstruction that Mueller ultimately leaves open. And so you know, I, I think a little bit there's a, just the fatigue and, and the complexity of the story. But, you know, what Trump is really looking for here is a combination of enough distance passing uh, and enough time passing, the cover of an ongoing national and international emergency with the pandemic, and some sort of Fox News pretextual basis that he can cling to to say why he's doing this in order to take an egregious step of pardoning Michael Flynn and we'll put Roger Stone and Paul Manafort behind him, something that even Donald Trump, somebody who has been willing to abuse his office again and again and again, has a step that he has been too afraid to take thus far. And and I think this is really all about attempting to sort of soften the ground um, for what will be, uh, if if it comes to pass, one of the most astonishing abuses of presidential power really in U.S. history uh, the response to which will almost certainly be a shrug from Congress and and maybe a shrug from the public as well. Yeah, I agree with you on that point emphatically, Susan. This is this is about setting up the pardon and and almost as if to put uh, a kind of exclamation point on that. I don't know if anyone saw this, but there was a photo that surfaced in social media this week, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be very clear that I I do not know the date that this came, but there seem to be indications that Michael Flynn posted this on his Facebook page within the past few days. But the photo is 100% of Michael Flynn uh, standing next to Eddie Gallagher, uh, you know, the former Navy SEAL accused of war crimes, standing next to Bernie Carrick, who the uh, the former New York police commissioner who uh, Donald Trump pardoned on, I think it was uh, 11 felony counts recently, uh, as along with Mark Mukasey, who is a, I believe, a lawyer to, for Trump or worked for Trump at some point, and then a fifth person who I haven't been able to determine who it is. They're together drinking at a restaurant that appears to look like one of the Palms, uh, having a great time. And it almost was sort of like, you know, as if you could almost read uh, the smile on Mike Flynn face in a way as to say, you know, I'm ready for my pardon now, Mr. Trump. Uh, You know, it's and I think, you know, to to Flynn's credit, maybe and and his supporters and his use of social media, he's played it very, very well. And he's turned himself into a symbol 
uh, of uh, you know patriotism and duty and loyalty, uh, and clearly wants to associate himself with other figures, notably Carrick and Bernie Gallagher, who are you know huge touchstones for for people uh, in the conservative media and supporters of President Trump. It's a neat trick in a way that Flynn is pulling here, and I, I think it might succeed. Uh, Tammy, quick point. I I think we know exactly what to do with this group of patriots. This is the delegation for the long-awaited U.S. mission to Mars. <laughs> no, I want to be on that delegation. Wait a second. I think this is the landing team for the new U.S. delegation to Venezuela. There you go. They're, they're going to be the beachhead for the new invasion. Do you guys think that they were supposed to show up and they were actually drinking at the palm? Like, oh, shit. Did we miss, yeah, we, did we, we miss the we boat? Forgot. Yeah, Fl- Flynn oh, was the man. head of intelligence for the, for the Bay of Piglets. Yeah, and Eddie Gallagher was going to lead the tactical landing team. Ugh. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, all right, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Uh, I think just Ben and I have objects this week. Uh, ben, why don't you go first? So I did a truly reckless act this morning uh, <laughs> in response <laughs> to my latest amusing set of exchanges with with uh, the estimable Dan Bongino, who is uh, <laughs> fast becoming my favorite Twitter plaything. Um I decided it was time to open up my Twitter DMs to anybody who wanted to write me. And I did this uh, because I actually thought it would smoke out some less than savory reactors who might need to be reported. And But I was shocked at the actual reaction, which is hundreds and hundreds of people writing to me lovely, interesting notes, some of them just saying, you know, thanks for Lawfare, thanks for what you do, and uh, some of them raising really interesting issues to discuss. Um, There has so far, among the ones I've seen, I've gone through about 100 of them so far, not a single vile note. They're all lovely. Um, But here's the thing that really stands out about them. An a wildly disproportionate number of them are from people who wanted to uh, uh, express appreciation for rational security. And they are from all over the world. And they are as much to uh, the rest of you as they are to me. But there are, I mean, we have a, a lovely note from a, from a human rights lawyer in Colombia just people all over the place who are listening to this podcast every week and find it valuable. So to everybody out there who is enjoying rational security, just want to say like, thanks for getting in touch. Uh, it's, it was super lovely to hear from you. That's, that's very nice. Um, my DMs all end up being, that's well, a mix of people, but there's also like an inordinate amount of sex bots. Yeah. My, I've gotten a lot of, so I, that's the reason I shut them down originally was just a very large number of, you know, hey, babe, do you want to be friends kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but um, And I'm sure this will turn ugly as soon as, you know, the Federalist crowd notices that, you know, they can DM me. But uh, I've been surprised at how civilized and lovely and substantive it has been so far. Yeah. Uh, Susan, you actually do have an object lesson. So uh, go ahead. 
I do have an object lesson, and I think that this is a follow-on object lesson, because I think that we actually talked about this article at the time uh, that it was released. Um, and this was back in April of 2019. We talked about a New Yorker article by Ben Taub called Guantanamo's Darkest Secret. Um, that is really this sort of remarkable story of uh, Mohamed Salahi, who was a former uh, Guantanamo detainee, and sort of charts uh, not just what occurred to him at Guantanamo Bay, but also um, sort of his life after and uh, sort of his very moving and profound friendship uh, that developed with a former Guantanamo guard, uh, you know, the, and sort of who he reconnected with and, and their relationship that's proceeded from there. Um, and so I'm making it my object lesson now again, um, because Ben Taub uh, just yesterday was awarded the Pulitzer Prize uh, for this piece. Um, and so congratulations to Ben. And, um, and if you haven't uh, had a chance to read it, uh, The New Yorker, it's, it's still online. It's called Guantanamo's Darkest Secret um, and is very, very worth a, uh, worth a read. Yeah, that was super cool. I was very, very pleased to see that yesterday. Um, so my object lesson, I'm continuing on my theme of what to watch while you're at home. Um, not exactly a security related TV series, but it does. It's a courtroom drama. So, you know, there's enough overlap. Uh, it's this new show on Apple Plus. I'm a big fan of Apple Plus or Apple TV, I think it's called. That's Disney Plus, Apple TV, called Defending Jacob. Have you guys heard about this? No. Basically, long story short, uh, story about a assistant uh, district attorney in Massachusetts who is played by Chris Evans, which, I mean, that alone is a reason for you to watch, uh, whose son is accused of murdering a classmate, which sounds like a fairly straightforward kind of procedural, but they do some really interesting things with flashback and with uh, sort of uh, exploring legal processes in a very interesting and dramatic way and playing with the ideas of of doubt that creep in uh, around any kind of case and what's reasonable doubt and other different kinds of doubt. Anyway, I'm only in the fourth episode, but it's super good. Uh, Michelle Dockery, who is Lady Mary from uh, Galton Abbey. Remember her? I, no, but I'll watch Chris Evans in anything. <laughs> She's I in will it, even uh... watch him in the Fantastic Four. Oh, God, that movie's so bad. So did bad. You, didn't Philip Glass do the score for that movie? No. I think he did. I think he did, Tammy. I don't know. It's so very, bad, Shane. It's such a so very bad. weird thing, I think. Anyway, um, uh, Jaden Martell, young actor, plays Jacob. And one of my favorite actresses alive, Cherry Jones, is in this miniseries, which is just great. Uh, she's just, I, I could watch her read a phone book. She's awesome. Anyway, Defending Jacob. Check it out. Uh, and now you can, because we've reached the end of our time with you. That's the end of the podcast. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where, remember, you will find a link to next week's live episode, uh, which, again, starts at 2.30 sharp Eastern time. You do have to register beforehand. So please, please join us there uh, and send us comments. And if you can't make it, of course, that will be our regular episode um you could find um i think like venezuela challenge coins on the lawfare store too right yeah we have a special edition uh bay of piglets challenge coin Excellent. which uh you know it, it has the image of the of the two guys arrest on one side no it's got a guinea pig holding a machine gun of course dude exactly <laughs> just Perfect. a frowny face on the other <laughs> you'll find it there <laughs> 
<laughs> you can also find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the show, and we are very grateful for that. Our audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, assisted by Zachary Frank. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by John Ratcliffe with his weirdly upbeat version of the Carol King classic, You're So Far Away. <laughs> Very good, Shan. You like that? He's feeling pretty confident this week. He's feeling a little little up, a little jazzy. He's going to call Sophia Yan. They're going to cut a rug. On behalf of my good friends, Benjamin Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will see you, and you can see us next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.